Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. I did that. I did that. That's my fault. It's okay. The table broke the fall. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Brian Auten recording with Chad Gross. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to just jump right in, continuing on from our conversation last week, where we were talking about the hiddenness of God a little bit. We were talking about some atheist arguments from Chad's atheist role play. Do you want to summarize that a little bit, Chad, and then tell us what we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So what I did is I was able to present to an area youth group as an atheist, and I presented the arguments that I thought from the atheist perspective are most potent. And as I explained in the prior podcast, I know that other people may, atheists that are listening may think that I left out an argument that may be more powerful to them than the three that I picked. But what I did is I did my best to pick the three that I find even as a Christian to be most challenging. And of course, not everybody finds the same arguments as compelling. And so forgive me if I left out your pet argument. (laughs) And so what we're going to do last week, we looked at divine hiddenness. We kind of mapped out a combination of uh, the way that Alex O'Connor presents it and the way that J.L. Schellenberg presents it. We're trying to steel man these arguments. That is our goal. We don't want to provide like weak versions or straw man versions, arguments that nobody makes and that are easy to tear down. This week, we're going to look at the argument from massive theological disagreement, and we're also going to look at the argument or excuse me, the problem of innocent or useless sufferings, the type of suffering that it just doesn't seem like there is any good reason for it to be happening. And I find these arguments to be challenging. Sounds good. You mentioned that massive theological disagreement is not the idea that there are just a, so many religions out there. How could they all, how could any of them be true? What is it? Yeah. So just to expound on that a little bit, and then um, I'll go into the argument is, you know, a lot of times people will present kind of a generic version of this argument. A lot of people think this argument is the argument I'm about to present. They'll say, well, uh, there's all these religions. How, how can we know which one is true? Well, that's really not that difficult. It sounds like a really compelling objection on the surface, but as soon as you start to look into various religions, you find that the majority of them are just silly, and some of them don't even pretend to provide evidence of why we should believe they're true. Also, when you start to look at the arguments for natural theology, it's very easy to quickly get to a theistic God, a monotheistic God. And so that eliminates all the Eastern religions. And you're really left with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And then you look at, of course, their sources and the um, historicity of their claims. And so that's really not that hard of a problem. And of course, that's more mapped out in general apologetics books. Uh, One that I think of on a popular level is I don't have enough faith to be an atheist really explains in the first few chapters, particularly how it's really not that hard to delineate between uh, the different religions once you begin to look at their specific claims. Now, this argument says something different. This argument says that there's all of these different religions. There's all of these different theological beliefs, right? And if God existed, And if God wanted us to discover the truth about him, 
then he would not allow all of these different theological views. He would not allow all of these different religions and people who were seeking him. He would guide them to the truth about him. He would not allow all of these people to be deceived. And so it's a little bit more potent in the sense that we're not just saying, oh, there's all these different beliefs and who can figure out which is true. It's not really that. It's more that it puts the onus on God. And it says that, again, to reiterate, God wouldn't allow all these false beliefs. God would, would if somebody was seeking God, he wouldn't allow them to be deceived. This is not consistent with his character. He would draw them to him in that sense. The way I go about this in, in thinking about this, and here's the argument in a syllogistic form, because I find syllogisms extremely valuable. Um, premise one, on the denial of theism, the observation of massive theological disagreement is likely. So in other words, if God doesn't exist, this is exactly what we should expect to see. On the affirmation of theism, the observation of massive theological disagreement is unlikely or less likely. So this is a probability argument. Then, of course, the conclusion is, is the fact of massive theological disagreement supports atheism more than it supports theism. And here I'm thinking of someone like a Paul Draper. Paul Draper would say that, look, massive theological disagreement isn't like a knockdown drag out argument for uh, atheism or against theism. But what he would say is, is this is kind of a if you have two jars, one jar for uh, theism, one jar for atheism. And you put a bean in a jar every time you have an argument in favor of that view. This would be a bean in the jar of atheism as far as a probability assessment goes. Any thoughts or questions before we kind of go into the responding? I think I'll hold those off till I hear more. Yeah. So first of all, one thing is I was thinking through these and remember, I do want to reiterate to listeners who may not have heard the the first podcast, because remember, this is a part two of responding to what I think are the most powerful atheistic arguments. Uh, we are responding to these from the, the perspective of biblical Christianity and not a generic theism. And I think the first response kind of response I had is I was thinking through this syllogism and this, by the way, to give credit this this syllogism and argument comes from uh, Justin Schieber. Uh, he is of uh, real atheology. He used to host also the Reasonable Doubts podcast before it stopped. He went away to get a degree in dentistry, I believe, and he is back on the atheistic scene. And this argument comes from him in a book he co-authored called um, An Atheist and a Christian Walk Into a Bar is what it's called. And so I found this form of the argument to be challenging. So the first thing I would want to say is, is that it could be that the existence of other religions actually aids in bringing as many people as possible to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, that may sound strange for a second, but stay with me here. So what I mean is, is think about a world in which there's only one religion. There's only Christianity. God has revealed himself and everybody knows it, right? I could easily see people becoming very complacent 
I could easily see people uh, taking that for granted, right? Um, a, a, a bit of evidence for this would, of course, be from the Israelites, right? They had direct revelation from God. They saw God creating these, or excuse me, doing these miracles. But yet, the idea that he had directly revealed himself, they knew which theology was correct, did not keep them from straying away from him. And so I think that, again, this idea that these other religions exist, it could awaken in someone a curiosity as to say, hmm, which one of these is actually true? Which one of these is in reality describing God correctly? And people might be more apt to seek God with all of this theological disagreement more so than they would be if there was no theological disagreement. What do you think of that, Brian? Yeah, that, that makes sense. One, one thing that kind of bugs me about the argument is it doesn't seem to come from the, if you were trying to figure out what religion were true, mm -hmm. this sounds like it more of an argument that you're an atheist and so you're trying to come up with arguments that atheism is right and you'd come up with this. But if you were trying to find out what is true, you wouldn't start with this. Um, hmm. you, you I never know, thought of that. It just sounds like, um, well, I believe atheism's true, and how can I show that? Well, look at all this theological disagreement. Now, can we put this into a syllogism? That's what it just sounds like to me, because I haven't really unpacked this or heard this full argument before. So that's my first sure. impression, is that it's more of a, like, atheism's true, and here's one of the reasons. Look at all this disagreement, you, you know? Hmm. And so God wouldn't have wanted that. It, it doesn't strike me as something you'd come up with if you were trying to find out what was true. Because if you were trying to find out what was true about uh, things, you would probably think, wow, there's such theological agreement. I mean, theism, everybody believes there's a God. You know, it must be a God, mm -hmm. you know, because that's more likely that everyone would, would believe it if that was the case. Well, the majority of the people mm -hmm. are theists, so it must be that God exists because if that's more likely if theism is true, then more likely that he would have revealed himself. You, you know what I'm saying? So hmm. it's like, uh, it just seems like kind of a backwards argument to me. Yeah, I was going to say, I never thought of it. I, I do like the idea of like, it does seem like an argument of almost like you've already thought about atheism being true and you're thinking about ways to demonstrate that or, or as Draper would say, you know, thinking about how many beans you can get in your jar. Uh, if you're making a cumulative case one way or another, everybody could say, something about agreement to one extent and to the point of you could make it in favor of christianity until there's a certain amount of oh, look at all the agreement on x part of christianity mm -hmm. and then you use that use that in your favor and then as soon as it becomes a disagreement you could say well people don't agree and they use it in against it so it's just it all depends on how granular you want to be with what you think is agreement or disagreement because mm. everybody agrees on certain things when it comes to theism there is a god but then you start talking about what is that god like and if you get real granular no person in the history of the world has been in agreement with another person they've never been exactly mm. the same so this is just the nature of what people believe is that they're never going to be in agreement so how does that disprove God. I just think that this is almost an argument in favor of theism in the sense that more people believe in theism than don't. And so that seems more likely to be true. Hmm. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, so even if, so you're saying like, even if, let me like rephrase it to make sure I understand what you're saying. So even if they have, even if there is, let's grant for the sake of argument, this massive, massive theological disagreement, it, it still demonstrates that the majority of people believe in some God. Yeah. Like how, how is God supposed to make everyone believe exactly the same thing? Yeah. Especially with free will. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, remember in try in addressing this argument from a biblical uh, Christianity uh, point of view, biblically there is a deceiver. Second uh, Corinthians four uh, four says this. It says, in their case, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right. So, in other words. If we look at massive theological disagreement through the lens of biblical Christianity, this is not something that is surprising of all for a couple of reasons. Number one, there is a deceiver. So there is an active agent in the world who is deceiving people. Now, God is obviously more powerful than this deceiver. He is not the deceiver himself is not all powerful. He's not all knowing. Uh, in in those other attributes we've talked about prior. However, uh, and God is able to use all of these things to work out, to work things out according to his purpose. But if there's a deceiver acting in the world, we shouldn't be shocked to see these different theological beliefs because there's someone actively trying to deceive people about what is the true gospel. Um, one thing that comes to my mind is this um, previously on the previous podcast, the other argument was the argument from hiddenness. And I always think one one aspect of one thing that weakens that argument in my mind is the idea that this, well, he hasn't revealed himself yet. Uh, same with the problem of evil. Hey, evil exists. Uh, or the problem of hiddenness. Hey, God is hidden. Or the problem of, hey, we're all disagreeing. Well, where are we or when are we on the timeline of history based on the Bible? Well, he will fully reveal himself and he will be known. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, right. he will do away with evil and evil will be completely destroyed. He, he, he will, in this sense, we will all believe the same thing. We, he will reveal himself in, in such a way where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So there, there will come an agreement, so to speak. So a lot of objections mm, like are kind of like they need to be contextualized within their time frame. I think even Paul addressed that when, he, when it comes to the problem of evil, our light and momentary afflictions, he looked at them in light of eternity. You know, they're nothing to be mm. compared to the future. So this whole idea of like, if you zoom in close enough, anything's going to be an objection. <laughs> yeah, I like that zooming in and and building on that that prior point that I made. Again, I want to restate that the, the this massive theological disagreement is not surprising at all. It actually makes sense and is what we would expect to see on Christianity, because as I've already said, there's a deceiver. And secondly, um, Jesus tells us in Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Um, Paul writing to the church in Galatia, he says, and now remember the church in Galatia, think about how early this is. And we're already starting to see this deception and these, these false beliefs pop up because here's what Paul says to the church in Galatia, and think about, this is just for me, interesting how this applies to Mormonism, but that's a whole other topic. It says, 
here's, here's Paul. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so my point is, is for me, the problem of massive massive theological disagreement makes complete sense on biblical Christianity in the sense that these other religions are going to, I think, spur people on to seek what is true about God. And as I argued real quickly, I don't think it's that difficult to tell which one is true if you're willing to, you know, uh, investigate them. Also, there's a deceiver who is actively deceiving people. And also Jesus and Paul, uh, the most influential people, obviously, in the New Testament, tell us, hey, look, there's going to be people deceiving you. There's going to be false prophets. So this this to me is not surprising. And you, I think you can also flip the argument with the biblical data and say that massive theological disagreement is actually an observation we should expect to see if biblical Christianity is true because of some of the points I've made. Super point. A lot of objections, you know, they come in my mind, they seem to come from also based on what someone thinks God would slash should do. Right. Oh, if God was, he would do this, he would do that. And then they object to this God they've created. He would reveal himself. He should have done this for me. He should uh, end evil in the way that I think he should. And so they're creating their own Bible, their personal little Bible. But they only have defeated their own little version. They haven't defeated the Christian God. And that's what you've said. I remember you saying, Chad, that you were really pleased to find out that, you know, when you're defending biblical Christianity, you have all these resources to bring to bear where you don't if you were just trying to come up with a philosophical response to a philosophical idea, like, uh, you know, the God of the philosophers, so to speak. So whenever someone said God should or he would do that. I would think, wait, 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 have we just stopped looking at the God of the Bible and we're talking Mm -hmm. about your made up God, you know, because that's not the one. Right. But isn't that exactly what Dr. Jones said, you know, is is like, look, if if you're going to come at me with an argument, I'm going to come at you from a biblical perspective. And you might say, well, I don't believe the Bible. But his point is, is but I do. And I'm going to show you how I think about this. And mm-hmm, the Bible mm-hmm. is going to be part of that thinking because I believe it's true. Now, of course, we should offer good evidence and reasons for that. And I know Dr. Jones would agree with that. But the whole point is, is I think that, yeah, you're right. The, the, the biblical the perspective from biblical Christianity just gives us a lot more ammunition in our arsenal, if you will. Yeah. So the last argument I presented was the problem of useless, um, or you could put innocent suffering. You know, it can be presented either way. Probably the most popular atheist version of this argument or example, I should say, of useless or innocent suffering is uh, atheist William Rowe likes to present uh, the idea of like a fawn who's out in the woods and it gets hit by lightning and it's injured and it's laying there with like this burning flesh. And uh, there's just no good reason for that to happen. You know, there's there's no good purpose behind that. I think that example has some merit to it. But I actually when I presented it to the youth group, Brian, I used the example of my dad 
And uh, the reason I did that is because it was a personal example and it was a genuine struggle that I had even as a Christian theist. And so kind of let me lay the argument out and then I'll show I'm going to do this one a little differently than I've done the other two. The argument goes something like this, but there are various versions of it, just like the other arguments. Premise one, an all good God must have a good purpose for everything. Premise two, but there is no good purpose for some whether it be useless suffering or innocent suffering. Uh, hence, it is unlikely an all-good God exists. And again, to be fair, you can adjust the conclusion to this argument to say it is unlikely, or you could just say, hence, God does not exist. It depends on how strong you want to make the argument. Obviously, the stronger you make the argument, the stronger you make the conclusion, the more burden of proof you're carrying, if that makes sense. But what I did is that I explained how my dad, when he was 58 years old, I remember having a phone conversation with him uh, and I was talking to him for about 30 minutes and he he suddenly asked me who he was talking to. And I remember thinking that is weird. And I, I kind of shook it off just, you know, maybe he, he, he was a big NBA fan. And so I thought maybe he had a game on and maybe he thought like, is this Brian or Chad? Brian's my older brother, you know, and he had younger kids, but they actually lived with him. So I knew he wouldn't think it was one of them. Uh, and so I remember getting off the phone and talking to my wife saying that was really strange. He, he really acted like there for a little bit that he didn't know who I was. So long story short, um, I, I gave, I went into more depth, but what happened was, is it, it, I, I got a call from my dad's boss within like the next six to eight months and basically saying like, Hey, he he's really struggling here. And we came to see him and found out he had been going to the doctor and essentially he had some mini strokes and it brought on early onset dementia. And within four years, by the time he was 62, he passed away from Alzheimer's. So I remember not struggling with the fact that he died. All of us are going to die. Be kind of silly to say it was unjust that he died. But I remember wrestling with God because I couldn't see any good reason why my dad had to go through what he did uh, to the point where he was, you know, wearing diapers. Uh, he lost the ability to talk. He couldn't recognize myself or my wife or my kids or his own brother. It, it just got to the point where I didn't. Again, I didn't wrestle with the fact that he was dying. I mean, we're all going to die from something and we're not, you know, entitled to another day. But it just I didn't understand how can any good come out of this? You know, how how can any how can there be anything valuable coming out of this? Why does he need to go through this? I just couldn't see it. Uh, and so that was the example I used. And for me, that mm -hmm. was more more potent and more powerful because it was personal. Uh, that's not to say that the the uh, the fawn example is not a good one. It, it, it's just for me, it doesn't hit home as much or add as much weight to the argument. Yeah. So the way that I think about this argument, and and as the listener can tell, I've got some experience wrestling with this myself, even from a Christian perspective, is that you know we don't know a good purpose just because we don't know a good purpose for some evil doesn't mean that there is no good purpose for it. Now, somebody might say, oh, well, that's skeptical theism. You're being a skeptical theist. I actually don't like the term skeptical theist at all because I don't find the statement that I just made 
to be skeptical at all. Uh, I have seen God work in my life, and I've seen God work in other people's lives through suffering, and therefore I have evidence to believe that there is a good purpose for some evil just because I don't know what that good purpose is doesn't mean there isn't. Does that make sense, Brian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think that it's unreasonable to think that minds that are limited in knowledge, uh, that would be us, right? Would know the reason for every instance of evil. I actually think that if God revealed his reasons for every instance of evil, we wouldn't even be able to comprehend it in our finite minds. Yeah. I think secondly, the the premise that there is no good purpose for some suffering can't be demonstrated. How on earth would anyone demonstrate that premise? The best they could say is, I personally can't see any good purpose for this suffering. And I can say that I still sometimes think that about my dad. <laughs> I can't mm -hmm. see any good purpose for some of the suffering he went through. I can't. But I think it would be the height of hubris to say that, therefore, there isn't any because I am limited in knowledge. I can't see ever. I can't see all the ripple effect that the, these types of things have. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about the first premise where it says there must be a good purpose. If God exists, uh, he must have a good purpose for everything. Mm hmm. I, I, you know, that's an assumption that someone's bringing to the table again, where are they getting that? Uh, is that coming from the Bible or not would be a question. I would want to unpack where, where those assumptions are coming from. Um, I think that there are some Christian theists who would allow for pointless suffering. And I've heard people that mm. are Christians affirm that, you know, there are some things that are, um, there is no good reason for it. There is terrible suffering. Now, they would mm. say that that is the result, for instance, of a consequence of sin. And so there's no direct reason for it. There's no direct good purpose for it. Now, it may pale in comparison to eternity, for instance, and it will be quickly forgotten. And we think it's this huge thing because it's right in front of our face and present. But in mm. a thousand years, a million years, what will that feel like so again back to perspective i know that and, and that's really could be looked at by the atheist as a cop-out oh well you just punt to eternity and you're and you're out of the the bind but i mean if yeah okay i think that's still a, a legitimate move to compare it to eternity you know what i mean again we're addressing this from the the viewpoint mm -hmm. of biblical christianity mm -hmm. and so that is a viable response that's a live option the other thing would be is this idea that there's, you know, when we say there's useless suffering or if someone says there's useless suffering and that God would have some good purpose for it. Well, maybe he does, but let's say he does. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be in the position to know it. So right. how do you how do you know he doesn't? You know what right. I mean? Just because you can't see it, uh, your knowledge is limited. He very well could. But for you to expect that you would know what the point of that was. For any given um, example, you could pull up, well, this is a real puzzler. I don't know what the answer is to this one. Well, you don't know an answer to a riddle from a kid's book. And then you, <laughs> you then someone tells you the answer and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, that's so easy. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, it was just this unlockable puzzle before you got the answer. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah. 
I also think too, in in regard to this argument, that not only you know just because we don't know a good purpose for some evil does not mean there is no good purpose for that evil, which is I agree with you. Also, it's unreasonable to think that limited minds would know the reason for every instance of evil, which is what you're saying. Also, you're affirming that premise too, but there is no good purpose for some useless or innocent suffering that can't be demonstrated. I think we can actually demonstrate that there are times where there seems like there's no good purpose for innocent suffering but that there clearly is. And I think the perfect example of that is Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. Look at the perspective of the disciples. Here was an innocent man. From their perspective, there was no good purpose for this innocent suffering. But in retrospect, we find that there was. And so I think that we can actually offer contrary evidence to premise two. And then finally, I, I think, did you do the Biola certificate program? Yeah. Did you ever do that? Yeah. There was a lecture in there by Garrett DeWeese on the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. And I remember a really powerful point that he made in that, that he thinks that the best response to the evidential problem of evil, which I think this version falls under that umbrella, is the cumulative case. And I want to try to just, this would be my last point, and then of course I'll let you add whatever you'd like to add, is that when we have instances of evil, like the fawn, you know, or uh, a baby with cancer, or my dad, and, and some of the things he went through, and me not understanding, and still not looking back and thinking, why, why, why did that have to happen? One of the points that DeWeese makes that I think is powerful is that, first of all, we have, we have evidence that there can be a good purpose for useless or innocent suffering, which I gave the example of Jesus on the cross, right? But he also says that even in those instances where we just don't, right, that we can trust God has good reasons, even if we don't know what they are, because of the weight of the evidence that we have, that God exists, that God is good. And mm-hmm. so this isn't a blind, oh, I'll just trust God, kind of blind faith. He must have a reason. Not that there's anything wrong with that kind of faith, right? In the sense that somebody who just has that prima facie faith is great. But I'm saying from this perspective, We say, look, we've got all these arguments. Think about the ones we've talked about on the podcast. We've got the Kalam, um, the contingency argument, the moral argument, the ontological argument, fine-tuning argument, argument from reason, argument from beauty, argument from desire, the information argument from DNA, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. It goes on and on and on. We have all of these arguments to trust that Christianity is true, and therefore, we can trust that God exists and that he has revealed himself in Jesus and that he has good reason for allowing some of the things that he does, even though we can't see what they are. Yeah. You know, it's the same with like um, someone studying ethics. If you just present someone with uh, some 
ethical conundrum, a really hard one. What, what if this person is on a railroad track and you have to, you know, divert oh, right, the train right. the trolley problem? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there's all kinds of these like moral dilemma things, and it's like, okay, you wouldn't start your education in ethics by looking at these things and just trying to figure it out from the hard case. You start mm. with what you do know. Uh, well, you know, you start yeah. with the things that are solid and they say, okay, what principles can we derive? And then how do we use these principles on the hard cases? Same with law or in the case of reading and interpreting scripture, one principle of hermeneutics is you interpret the unclear through the clear and let mm. scripture interpret scripture. So to my mind, it is same thing what you're saying. You, like lo you look at what, what do we know? Because this is a hard case. This is like, well, how do we figure this out? Do we use this as our, do we use this puzzling uh, oddity of like, uh, boy, how, how do I explain this if there's a loving God? Well, first figure out if there's a loving God. And then, <laughs> and then if that's the case, then use the resources within the scripture to help mm. you parse it out. Start with what is clear. And that's what I hear you saying when you say, you know, start with a cumulative case. You've got all of this evidence that is that are strong arguments and then cumulatively give you this case for um, the Christian God of the Bible who has revealed himself in Jesus. Now use that. And these are going to be hard cases, but they they will bring light. They might not give you the answer that's satisfying and fulfilling and oh, anything I throw at you know it's thrown at me now i just understand it fully and that'll never be the case but you'll at least right have clarity or at least a, a clear starting point to try to think as christianly as possible about it um another thing that comes to mind is um how many times have you heard someone go through something really terrible and difficult and they think oh well, that's the worst thing i've ever gone through but i wouldn't trade it for anything and i wouldn't wish it on my worst right. enemy but wow uh now i understand and now I know the Lord better. I was listening to a podcast on the Unbelievable program with Tim Keller was a guest. And he was talking about his cancer and how it was sort of the same sort of vibe. Like, wow, now now I can pray better. And now I hmm. slowed down and it took cancer to, to show me certain things, you know, or my yeah. mortality and stuff. Well, think about like Johnny Erickson Tata. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, if there's ever an ever a example of that. Mm -hmm. So while the, the, you know, the problem of useless suffering or innocent suffering can have a lot of emotional impact, uh, I think that we do, especially from the perspective of biblical Christianity, have a lot of uh, resources that can address it. And so I guess I'd say in closing, if you're listening and we'd love to hear what you think about our responses to the arguments, the arguments themselves, also, if there is an argument that causes you to stumble or that you really wrestle with, uh, Brian and I would love to hear it, and perhaps we could address it down the road on a future podcast. But just know that these arguments, one of the things I hope you've seen as we've gone through divine hiddenness and the problem of massive theological disagreement and the problem of useless suffering, is that they can, uh, prima facie, or on the face of it, look really potent but when you really stop and think about them and evaluate the premises, you can see that um, they're not as powerful as they first appear. And so I think that's just a good lesson to take away is if you hear an argument and it initially shakes you, 
before you begin to panic or something, take the time to pray about it and, again, assess the premises from the perspective of biblical Christianity. And I think you'll find that biblical Christianity holds up quite nicely. Well, Chad, thank you for bringing the content these past two weeks. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we got a couple of interviews coming up, folks. So stay tuned. We're going to be talking about evangelism. So get ready and we'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetics stuff over at Truth Bomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.